Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, a senior editor at The New Yorker. Identity has gone from being something personal to something that carries enormous political power. But even as people organize themselves around certain labels, like people of color, the definitions change, constantly shrinking and expanding. In this week's issue of The New Yorker, Munver Singh writes about the shift to lump tribal groups across the world under the term indigenous. Does this allow them to join forces, or does it put them in a box? Singh is a writer and a research fellow in anthropology. Hi, Munvir. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Tyler. Of course. Um, so in your piece for the, the magazine this week, you wrote that um, today nearly half a billion people qualify as indigenous. If they were a single country, it would be the world's third most populous behind China and India. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what does it mean to qualify as indigenous? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so there are a couple of criteria that are often discussed. One is firstness or being the descendants of the earliest population in a land, in a region. The second is political marginalization. So yeah, not having control over the political institutions. Um, oh yeah, probably the most important I skipped over is self-designation, is considering yourself indigenous. And then there's also economic marginalization. There's also um, cultural threat, feeling like your language, your religion, your traditional practices are forbidden or not respected. I think these are some of the most important that people coordinate around. I mean, and do all of the groups that qualify as indigenous like have all of those things or do they just have like the majority of those things? Yeah, I mean, that's the tricky question. Um, The answer is not all of them have everything I just listed. Mm -hmm. And there is an interesting tension in the history of the indigenous people's movement where you know, some people want to lay out traits that that are important, but there has actually, at the same time, always been a push against having a definition. The piece actually focuses on the the Maasai who um, who do not have the firstness criterion. They think of themselves as having arrived in Tanzania in the last couple hundred years from farther north, from South Sudan. So I think it's it's a bit grayer. So just to make sure that I'm, I'm getting this um, right, so is it the UN that gets to decide who counts as indigenous? Or is it just sort of like a separate body that's coming down from on high and deciding, you know, you are indigenous, you are not indigenous? Like, I guess I'm wondering if this is a body that is, you know, is it like indigenous people who make up this body or is it, you know, like a white body? You know, the piece talks a lot about this one figure, Parakipuni, this Maasai man. And he went to the UN working group on... Uh, indigenous populations representing the Maasai. And so through that kind of a process, the Maasai then became indigenous. But there were later people who then talked to Maasai people, and they aren't even familiar with that term. They're, you know, largely divorced from the kinds of conversations that are happening at that scale. So I would say that indigenous people are contributing to this decision, um, but the people who are most often included in those conversations are urban you know, formally educated people who often have political ambitions of their own. That's interesting. I mean, you know, when I think about identity in America, I feel like there's been a move, at least in recent years, toward 
just like more nuance. Like, and there's been a move recently, you know, from, you know, using African-American to black because not all black people in the United States are African-American. But this seems like something that's almost kind of going in the opposite direction where you have all of these very distinct groups who are now being categorized in, you know, one particular way under a single like sort of like unifying label. And I'm wondering what the intention behind that is. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think there are a couple things going on. One is that when you become indigenous and when you can participate in these transnational spaces, now you have the opportunity to get the support of international players. So if you're a marginalized community in a state and you are, you know, you're fighting over land, you mm-hmm. want to maintain your land, you want to keep out some organization or corporation from taking natural resources, it's pretty hard to do that. Um, and so there is a huge appeal of suddenly getting the backing of Survival International, of, you know, having a lot of people looking at you, of having the Dutch and other Europeans send you money. There is a way in which the indigenous identity allows you to springboard from a local marginalized group that is like divorced from from international players onto an international stage. And so I think that is a really important appeal. The other thing, very interestingly, and this actually comes back to your last question, is that historically there have been Euro and Euro-American activists and anthropologists who have really pushed the indigeneity label. So for instance, a really big one has been the um, International Work Group for Indigenous Affairs based in Copenhagen, the IWGIA. You know, they had helped Parkipuni get to the get to the UN. They had worked with George Manuel to establish the World Council um, of Indigenous Peoples. But there's an interesting way in which kind of white activists and white academics themselves seemed motivated to create this identity and bring people into it. I mean, that raises a larger question of why they were involved uh, and why they felt so motivated. But but they seem to be big players, especially in the beginning, as the identity was being created and then expanded. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the, I guess, just to give our listeners a sense of like how wide ranging of a term this is, just sort of the, I guess, like the more um, like unlikely groups that fall under this category of indigenous or sort of, um, I guess, give us a sense of like which groups are like more hotly debated. Like you you mentioned in your piece that, um, you know, Icelanders are an example of a, a group that qualifies as indigenous but doesn't count. The edge cases. Yeah. So the Samoans are an interesting one because, you know, as people try to figure out the criteria for indigeneity, um, there are often groups that seem to intu- intuitively be indigenous but don't necessarily qualify by the rules people like to designate. So, you know, common criteria people lay out are firstness, self-designation, and some kind of political marginalization, maybe cultural threat. And the Samoans are interesting because um, they are the the major political group in Samoa, and you know, they kind of run the show in terms of their culture, but they are considered by many peoples to be indigenous. I mean, as we start to think about these issues, should political control still be a criterion? For instance, if Greenland ends up getting total independence from Denmark, so right now they're they're increasingly becoming autonomous, if they become totally independent, do all of the Greenlandic Inuits stop being indigenous? Um, one that I talk about a lot in the piece are the the Adivasi in India. And the Adivasi, that has been a contested designation for decades, where the Indian government is like, either all Indians are indigenous or no Indians mm. are indigenous. But 
transnational organizations have really embraced the Adivasi as indigenous people. Although, you know, were they there first? That's kind of unclear and probably not. And should they get the status of indigeneity while other subjugated peoples in India, like the Dalits, the so-called untouchables, do not? That's like another complicated question. You know, by ascribing them indigeneity, it reinforces this perception of the Adivasi as divorced from society, as like hill and forest people, as um, separated from history. So another thing that you you talk about in your piece, and this kind of is related to what you were saying, is that um, just this idea of, you know, being indigenous might be seen as shorthand for, you know, being primitive. And I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about that and the the potential dangers there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of tricky to understand why indigeneity has been conflated with certain stereotypes about primitiveness, certain antiquated stereotypes that you are timeless, that you are unchanging, that you are egalitarian, that you are spiritually attuned to nature, that you are divorced from history and civilization. Um, you know, maybe it's the colonial history of the term indigenous that it was often used to separate white settlers and the people who were inhabiting lands before them. Um, but there is a conflation. And it has this tricky consequence of, of reinforcing that stereotype, partly because of how it incentivizes people to behave, to be included in the circle of indigeneity. So let's say you were a marginalized group in some country in India, in Tanzania, and you want the international stage, you want the international platform, you want donor money from the Dutch and you know the English, and you want the support now, the way that you can best seem to do so, or the way that at least many activists see the, those benefits as coming, is that you perform these stereotypes of primitiveness. You, you know, push narratives of, of yourself being spiritually attuned to nature. You push narratives of yourself being kind of untouched by society. I was reading something about Adivasi groups in Bangladesh, where there was like a a local ethnic celebration and people put on really nice like Bollywood clothes and then they danced and urban activists came out and they were like, you can't do this. You need to look more tribal. That is the way that we get these benefits. And there's an interesting irony here where part of the idea of indigeneity is that it is a way for people to maintain their culture, for people to protect themselves from cultural degradation. But the irony is that by performing these stereotypes, that kind of accelerates a loss of any cultural identity or, re or maybe replaces the culture that they wanted to preserve with this one that is valued on the international stage and, and in many cases conforms to kind of harmful stereotypes. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could, I guess, talk a little bit more about why activists would see that as like useful and almost sort of like significant to these larger political battles. Yeah. You know, I was watching a video for a particular Adivasi group in India. It was by Survival International, I believe. And it was a, a video to get support for this group in their, in their battle with a mining company. In the heart of India lies a precious jewel. Hastheo Forest. A rare oasis of intact biodiverse forest in the middle of the country. This forest's abundance has not happened by chance. The 20,000 indigenous people who live here have shaped and nurtured it for generations. To the Gon, Orao and other tribes of Hasteo, the forest is not just home, the land of their ancestors. 
but is also a sacred place, a living being whose gods they revere, and which in turn provides them with everything they need. And it's really based on they have lived in this environment for centuries, for millennia, untouched, in close connection with nature. And, you know, I think that pulls on people's heartstrings, and that's kind of the kind of narrative that is in turn incentivized. And do you think that that should um, sort of change the way that we think about um, these kind of like traditionally powerful resonant images like, you know, Standing Rock, you know, whether some of that imagery is per- perhaps even dangerous? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated because a lot of these conflicts are conflicts over imagery where, you know, one very wealthy, well-supported state or corporation is painting a particular narrative about how its work will benefit particular communities or spread wealth in a particular way or, you know, help develop. Um, And, you know, to what extent are those accurate versus justifications for self-interested aims? Um, So I don't necessarily want to say that particular groups should not deploy imagery and narratives in ways that are strategic. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated when you have instances where the urban activists representing a people are pretty divorced from their situation. Um, and so the, the example I present in the piece is this great research by Al Pasha at the London School of Economics who worked with Adivasi communities again in India in Jharkhand. And what she found was that urban activists have good motivations. You know, they want to benefit these people, but they're pretty divorced and separated from their experience. Um, and so... The, the means that urban activists have of gaining support and gaining money, which is to push primitive, primitive imagery, in those instances, in the instances she documents, actually end up harming the people. So the, the example that I provide in the essay is this thing about elephants. It's kind of a funny image of elephants, but the way that she describes it is it's really tough. These elephants are like destroying people's houses. They're kicking people. They're trampling people. And the people want to clear the forest, to get these elephants away. Um, but the activists' narratives, presumably, have really been about these are people in touch with nature. These are people who have lived among the forest for generations. And as a result, that actually traps them into the forest. It leads to what she calls eco-incarceration. So here you have a case where the activists seem to be acting from a good place, but they're totally divorced from, from the ways in which that is entrapping the people. So that, that's a case where I think it's good to critique the narrative and to think more critically about it. You'll hear more from Mumber Singh in just a moment. So we've talked a bit about like sort of the paternalism um, element here. Um, But I'm wondering about, you know, it seems to me that if you take a bunch of people and you sort of put them under, you know, one label that that might actually sort of facilitate um, discrimination in a way like um, you know it's like all of a sudden you have all these like diverse groups and they're now under one category and you can you know just treat that one category in a specific way and so I'm, I'm wondering about like the ways in which the expansion of the term indigenous has perhaps led to I don't know just thinking about like disenfranchisement and, and, and just sort of looking at people who actually like are you know using it to do harm yeah okay so a couple of things come to mind um First is just one that really connects to everything we've said, which is that when you group many people in a single term, it just allows people to more easily project their expectations onto 
all of the diverse people. You know, you have incredibly rich cultural diversity that is all subsumed within a single term, and it's very easy to treat them all as as members of a of a roughly similar category. But then there are also ways in which indigeneity, yeah, does um, turn out to be a, a bit politically fraught. One which is which is very striking um, is that, and so this was something that happened in Tanzania, is that governments can treat indigeneity as ethnic-based mobilization. So in the post-colonial period, a major goal of a lot of governments is to essentially dissolve ethnic differences. In the classic discussion of the French, you know, you use public education to turn everyone into Frenchmen and then Frenchmen into Republicans. So post-colonial states want to turn everyone into citizens from their different ethnic affiliations. And so governments sometimes think about indigenous-based organizing as a way of resurrecting ethnic coalitions. It's at least providing a justification for governments to then quash activism. So, you know, I am I am a state, an otherwise marginalized group is now calling itself indigenous. I can quickly just refer to that as ethnic mobilization and quash it and use it as a justification for control or surveillance. Um, but then it can also actually harm inter-ethnic coalition building um, when certain ethnic groups see this as a way of a particular ethnic group gaining prominence and, and trying to shove other people out of the way. You mentioned um, tribalism earlier, and I'm wondering if we could talk a bit about just like how the shift toward, um, you know, using the the term indigenous and, you know, redefining like our concept of what this is and, you know, potentially including more groups, how it's actually sort of like encouraged solidarity. You know, I feel like we've talked a lot about like the political benefits, but I'm wondering just sort of about the more like kind of like human emotional benefits of, yeah, just being part of a, a larger group of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, so something that I was consistently finding while working on this piece, while really digging deeply into this topic, is stories about people's experiences going to very far away places and suddenly being able to contextualize their experience or to see mm-hmm. it on, on a global scale. So the piece starts with Parkipuni, this Maasai man who is sent to the United States and just by chance ends up visiting the Navajo and then the Hopi. And suddenly his understanding of, of the Messiah experience is transformed. You know, he doesn't now only think of the Messiah as, as a singular case. It's like, oh, we are actually part of an international struggle. And, you know, he talks about that in his speech, and we can think about that partly as, as a way to get in the circle of indigeneity. But I think it's it also comes from a sincere place of like, oh, yes, we are we are part of a, a global cause. The The other example I talk about in there is George Manuel, who goes to New Zealand and talks to the Maori. So he's at that time the president of what was then called the National Indian Brotherhood, this organization that represented all of Canada's First Nations people or, or a good number of them. And he goes to the Maori, he talks to people and he's like, oh my God, yeah, our experiences are so similar. And he comes out of that. And that's when he starts thinking about this global indigenous identity. And he also actually at that point refers to them as the fourth world, you know, the the original inhabitants of, of places whose land has been usurped and whose sovereignty has been usurped. And in those early documents, you see people talking about the sense of solidarity and also the new networks that form to trade information. Now people can now exchange strategies and, and connections and suddenly they're empowered in a way that they weren't. So obviously like indigenous is like an umbrella term, but I'm wondering if indigenous people would also um, 
I mean, identify with another umbrella term, which is people of color. Yeah, yeah. So an interesting thing is that in the in the early days of the indigenous identity, the people, uh, so who I think were at the first World Council of Indigenous Peoples meeting were First Nations people in North America, um, you know, groups in Central and South America, Australian Aboriginal people, the Maori, and then the Sami of Scandinavia, these reindeer herders. And the thing that's striking about the Sami is that the Sami are white. Um, and that was actually a point of discussion at that first meeting. Should the Sami be allowed in? The Sami are white. And it was concluded that no, but the Sami are indigenous in the way that we are thinking about it. I guess I'm just so um, interested in this idea of like marginalization being part of the classification protocol. I'm trying to think of another example of um, sort of like a community that that does. I mean, obviously, um, it's sort of like built into the term like minority that, you know, there's a majority. Um, but, you know, often in the U.S., we talk a lot about how like, you know, especially in southwestern states like Texas and Arizona, like what is now the minority might become the majority. Um, and so it feels like those terms are almost more fluid um, and our like understanding of what those communities can be. It isn't necessarily defined by the fact that they are currently marginalized. Um, and there's this built-in potential for them to no longer be marginalized. And that's the hope and the goal. And I'm wondering like whether, um, you know, indigenous, like having sort of marginalization sort of built into it, whether that like creates like a like a ceiling of some kind or whether it almost like opens up the question of like, I mean, obviously the goal is not to like no longer become indigenous, but the goal is to no longer become marginalized. And so how does um, how does identity partly based on like your marginalized status just affect the way that you go about activism? Yeah, that is a fascinating question because it has historically been the case that some peoples who were considered indigenous early on in the indigenous rights movement are now no longer. Hmm. So an, an example are Tanzanians, not the Maasai, not the pastoralists, not the hunter-gatherers, you know, the, the Tanzanians writ large. So early on in the indigenous people's movement, as George Manuel is, is starting the World Council, he thinks of the Tanzanians as indigenous. He thinks like that decolonization campaigns are indigenous people's campaigns. So that's like the mid-1970s. By the late 1980s, who is indigenous in Tanzania shifts to the hunter-gatherers and the pastoralists. No one is saying that the, the dominant population in Tanzania is indigenous anymore. Um, I don't know how often this is actually talked about, but there is an interesting feature where by some usages, by some definitions, you do essentially graduate out of indigeneity if you succeed in your political ambitions and your political aims. You know, the, the movement is sufficiently young and power is sufficiently entrenched that there haven't been so many cases of this necessarily happening in the last 50 years. But as time goes on, I think that we will be confronted with more of these cases like the Samoans, like the Tanzanians, or if uh, Greenland gets independence, where will the Greenlandic Inuit lie? And maybe maybe these kinds of weird contradictions will force a reconsideration again of indigeneity. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the term is almost like sort of applying like a colonial lens or it's sort of looking at like how um, a, a population um, fared under colonial powers or sort of during an earlier time as opposed to sort of being something that feels, I guess, like more forward looking. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I definitely think it, it has that 
that colonial dimension to it. And I mean, it, it has like a whiteness dimension to it. They, they recognized this in the, the early days of the World Council when they brought up the Sami. It was an important enough conversation that it raised um, consideration. But yeah, no, there's no doubt that it's, that it's a, a term that, that is laden with its, its own colonial history. And that carries its own complexities. Do you think that there's like a different term or unifying idea that might be able to bring together oppressed and marginalized people at like on a global scale? Or do you, I mean, do you, is there a different term that's been, so that's like sort of been floated around or are there other unifying ideas that could potentially work? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Human rights (laughs) is like, (laughs) but this is something I, I was thinking about while working on the piece, like, is there is there an identity that can just encompass marginalized peoples or oppressed peoples and doesn't come with the baggage? And yeah, not that I know. I mean, indigeneity partly has its power because it's not everyone. There's something special that's a part of indigeneity and the fact that it has this exclusionary quality gives these people power. Um, it's just unfortunate that the grounds for inclusion and exclusion kind of reinforce some of the colonial baggage that that is putting people in their in their marginalized positions. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about how, like, in, um, you know, society and, in, you know, in politics, like, we're constantly kind of using these umbrella terms, like, you know, indigenous or people of color, and how, like, obviously there are, you know, so many distinctions within these, these you know, not only within each group, but then between the, you know, different groups. But I do feel like, you know, what we are talking about a lot of the time is, you know, just people who are marginalized. Um, and at least within the case of indigenous, I mean, that is it's one of like the defining characteristics. Um, and so it makes me wonder whether there is another way to be kind of thinking about activism and thinking about, you know, identity politics and whatnot that is actually more more inclusive. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because on the one hand, you don't want to exclude people on the basis of criteria that, you know, you can't do so consistently mm-hmm. or which feel like they're perpetuating stereotypes. On the other hand, the indigenous identity was crafted to fit people who had a very particular experience, who, you know, were first residents who had land and and sovereignty usurped by settler populations. I mean, I don't think you would want to miss also the specificity of these historical experiences. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. How can you create an inclusive indigeneity or an inclusive identity for marginalized people without overlooking the really important historical experiences that have shaped people's contemporary conditions. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's kind of an impossible task. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Munver Singh is a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse and is working on a book about shamanism. You can read his article, It's Time to Rethink the Idea of the Indigenous, in the magazine and on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.